Well, that was, uh, that was uh, the, op- the intro to season six of that show, Father Knows Best, airing on, I think it was CBS, back to CBS by that time. I, I know the first time I saw that, uh, the-, the thing I wanted to do was run home and check to make sure that my toothpaste had hexachloropene in it. How about you? I know, I, I've, I've never been so interested in what's in my toothpaste until I saw that. But we started a series last week called Father Knows Best based on this parable that, that Jesus told, a series of three parables, really, that Jesus told, concluding with uh, the summation of the stories, the, the story of the prodigal son, the one that, that we all know and that we love. And so this week, I, I want to continue and conclude that series with this message called What's Love Got to Do With It? Now, as a quick recap, let me run and, and I'm going to be fast, so if you're the kind of person who likes to take notes, and I encourage you to do so, you're going to have to write really, really quickly this morning. I'm sorry, there was just a lot to, to get in, and uh, I couldn't stand to throw any of it out, so there's just, there's a lot. So please, do your best to keep up. Uh, beginning in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, tax collectors and notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. So that sets up, uh, Luke, Dr. Luke sets up that entire chapter with that that statement, tax collectors and notorious sinners. Now this made the Pharisees in verse 2 and religious teachers complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. It was bad enough that these, these unsavory crowds of people came to see Jesus, but Jesus kind of seemed to enjoy it, kind of played host for them, even ate with them. So the, the religious leaders didn't think Jesus should associate with notorious sinners because they weren't worth his attention. So, in Luke, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 15, Jesus told them this story. And again, once again, this is all from last week. So if you feel lost, if I'm going a little... Uh, something that's kind of come along recently in our educational system called new math. Can I see your hands? You've heard of new math? Okay, it, new math gets a pretty bad rap. I don't really know much about it. I don't know if it's good or bad. Um, I'm not, I, I couldn't recognize it if it walked in the door and slapped me across the face. I would have no idea what it was. But Jesus, in these stories, Luke chapter 15, these three stories that he told, he introduced a kind of new math, you could say, you remember that there were, does anybody remember how many sheep there were in total? Good, you Bible students. And how many of them were safe in the pen? 99. And there was one of them that got lost. But the shepherd, the good shepherd, went out to find that one because it was not worth less than the 99. So this is the new math. One is not less than 99. You see that? Okay. Good. And the next story that Jesus told was the story of the lost coin. How many coins in total were there? <laughs> Ten. Very good. And the woman, Jesus was an equal opportunity parable teller. He told a story about a man who was a shepherd and a woman who had coins. She lost uh, how many of these coins, these ten coins that she had? She lost one. So she still had nine. It doesn't take new math to figure that out. And she swept the house from top to bottom and finally found it. And the point that Jesus was trying to make is that that one was not worth less than the 99. It was one is not less than nine. 
And the, the final story, the final parable, allegory that Jesus told was the parable of the lost son. So quickly, let's recap what's already been read for us this morning, just so we have the highlights of that story in our minds as we go into the points that I'd like to draw out of the Scripture for you this morning. To illustrate the point further, the point, Jesus is making a point, and Luke has arranged these stories to supplement that point. Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. We had a story about 100 sheep. We had a story about 10 coins. Now we have a story about two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. That was read for us already. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. Shocker. Skipping down to verse, came to his senses. He said to himself, because life got bad. Remember, he got sent into the fields to feed pigs, which was a terrible indignity for a good Jewish farm boy. Uh, he even got so hungry that he wanted to eat the pig slop. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. So he hatched a plan. He said uh, he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And then the son proceeds to lay out this plan that he, the speech that he had rehearsed that he was going to say to his dad, but his dad cut him off, stopped him, didn't even pay attention to what his son was saying. Instead, he said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robes in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. He was dead but he's returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So does that bring the story a little bit closer to home? That modern retelling of the prodigal child? 2,000 years later after that story was originally told, it still resonates with us. It still tugs at our heartstrings because it's a story of redemption. It's a story of what was lost being found, what was dead coming back to life. It's a story that illustrates for us this new math that Jesus gave us some 2,000 years ago. The one is not worth less than 99. One is not worth less than nine. And one is not even worth less than one. No one is worth less than anyone else, and no one ever is worthless. But I want you this week to consider something maybe you haven't thought about before. In the countless times that you've no doubt heard this story, being around church for more than five minutes, you've heard this story plenty of times before. This allegory, this parable that Jesus told is commonly called the prodigal son, but I think, in my opinion, the real hero of the story is the father. The real hero is the father. He's the one who did all the hard work. He's the one who did the loving and the forgiving. He's the one who showed the grace and showed the mercy. So and that, got, that got me thinking this week about my dad and the special memories that we shared together. And it got me wondering what kind of special memories you shared with your dad. So I threw that question out 
uh, on Church Center. If you have the Church Center app on your phone and you have notifications turned on, you should have gotten a question from me this week. I asked, what's one special memory that you have with your dad? And here are some of the responses that I got. Kai said, going to Disney. Sounds like fun. Alex said, Girl Scout father-daughter dances. I think that was your, your daughter. Father-daughter Ava said, playing the piano while singing with her dad was a special memory. And then I got some really specific answers, like this one. Caleb said, I went on a trip to Monticello. Do you say Monticello or Monticello? Cello? So Monticello, with just my dad, and we went to the movies and also ate new places together and just had a good time. So he really enjoyed that, Larry. He really enjoyed that. And then Liz said, he had a leather stamping kit, my dad, and when I was young, he would make belts and purses. We would stamp cool designs on them and paint it, and I'll never forget the smell of that leather. Isn't that funny how some memories stick with you? Smells can trigger those things. Walter said, riding with my dad on runs during the summer. I don't, was he running and you were riding a bicycle? What was he was a truck driver. Okay, so you would go with him. I see. I, I imagined him running, and you're riding alongside. I thought you got the better end of that deal. <laughs> okay. Uh, going to get a Frosty from Wendy's after visits to the doctor. My wife said that, Cheryl with an S. Um, Heather said learning to drive a stick shift in a cemetery? What is that? I, I, got, I didn't ask a follow-up question to that, but I really felt like that one deserves. Learning to drive a stick shift in a cemetery. Well, good point. That's a good point. Wow. Wow, you just went right for it. Way to go, Roger. And then uh, somebody threw this one in. They didn't want their name, but they said, letting me drive the car with a manual transmission from one set of grandparents' house to the other. I was too short to reach the clutch and see, so he would hold the steering wheel while I slid down to push in the clutch. We made it safely. Part of the way was on a dirt road, so very little traffic. And then somebody else sent in this one. Within my last days, on, with my, within my dad's last days on earth, he finally told me he was proud of me. That's a special memory. So then I thought, uh, I got a few more, but I thought it would be fun to see if you could guess who these people are, because I've heard a couple of these stories before. I so see if you can guess who this was. I loved it when my dad worked the 3 to 11 shift at the flight simulators at the Air Force Base on maintenance nights. We would go uh, inside one, and he would fly it as I worked the computers, throwing him fires and thunderstorms or whatever else I thought of. Can you guess who that was? You know who it was, don't you? Who was it? It was your wife, of course. It was Andrea. Yeah, Andrea thought of that one. Um, this was, this was my favorite, so I, I saved it for last. Well, no, this is not last. One day, uh, he was using a payphone and he checked the return coin section. You remember how payphones used to have that hung on the wall and then had the little spot where the, so it was totally full of change. I asked, what you going to do with all that money? He said, I'm going to return it to the phone company. I said, yeah, right. He laughed and he gave me the change and I thought I was rich. Have, have you heard that one before? You have any idea who that was? That was Debbie McGowan. He said that one. This one, this next one was my favorite. Here we go. Uh, going fishing and talking the whole time. Finally, he told me if I did not stop blabbing, he was going to tie me to a tree. There were no trees on the creek bank, so I just kept talking. <laughs> 
but it, that's not quite the end of the story. The last sentence is the best. I never went fishing ever again. <laughs> Anybody guess who that is? You might be surprised. That was Linda Weehunt who said that. Yeah, yeah, that's a fun story. And I can totally imagine it being true, too. Not hard to see in my mind's eye. So let's pick up this story. We're talking about the hero of the story this morning, the father. Let's pick up the story where we left off last week. Meanwhile, this is in verse 25 of Luke chapter 15. The older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. Woo, party. And he asked one of his servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. Parties in the ancient Near East like this were relatively rare occurrence. They were very expensive, much more expensive than the parties that we throw today. So he came home. He heard a party. He probably got real excited. And then he heard who the party was for. And verse 28 says, the older brother was angry. Oof, he didn't like this at all, the situation as it presented itself. The real question as I came to this and I was reading and studying, the question that popped into my mind, maybe your mind too, is why was he angry? For what reason was he upset? What did he really have to be angry about? I can think of a few possibilities. Maybe he was jealous. I mean, because you know how parents treat the younger, the youngest. You know, you have multiple kids. You know the youngest gets away with everything, right? And the older one is like the mini parent. That's just the way that it is. And they're held to a different standard. I'm not going to say it's a higher standard, even though it is. But they're held to a different standard. The youngest can do whatever they want because they're the baby. They're the favorite. That's just kind of the way it is. I can say all these things because I'm an oldest. So anyway, maybe he was jealous. Maybe he was bitter because he had been left to take care of the farm while younger son little baby brother got to go off and do whatever he wanted and waste all of mom and dad's money. Or maybe he was afraid. Younger brother is back home now. We've already divided the inheritance. Is dad going to split it again? Am I only going to get a quarter now? I mean, I was settling for half, but now I'm going to get a quarter? I don't know. Maybe all of these things were going through his mind. See, anger is not a primary emotion it's a secondary emotion it's something that we exhibit when something else happens first sometimes it's because we get jealous sometimes it's because we're bitter sometimes we're afraid those things lead to anger but this reminds me this anger that he's feeling at the start of the chapter reminds me of a group back there that Luke pulls out that he tells us was present when Jesus told this story the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law Remember, they were complaining that Jesus was associating with these sinners. They didn't like it at all. Were they, I don't know, were they jealous? Maybe bitter? Maybe afraid? I'm not sure, but I do know that Jesus told this story to make a point about these people. So let's just keep going and see where the story takes us. The older brother was angry, it says, and he wouldn't go in. He refused. He refused to go in and join the party. Parties were a big deal, but he wouldn't go in because of the way he felt. I mean, his, his dad was throwing a party for the younger son on the inside, but the older son was having a pity party all by himself on the outside. So he was kind. I've been there. I've done that. So have you. 
So have your kids. We all know what this feels like to be left out, and we all know what it feels like to exclude ourselves from a good time because of the way that we're feeling. His feelings may have been hurt, but who were his feelings really hurting? Was the younger brother upset that his older brother was in the party? I mean, not that we're told. Was the dad mad that his oldest son wouldn't come and join the party? Well, he was alarmed. But the person who was most hurt by his feelings was himself, of course. His hurt feelings were hurting himself the most. But let's go on and see what else we can learn from this allegory that Jesus told. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in, so his father came out. His father came out and begged him, please come inside. Your brother's home. He begged him, but, but the older brother replied, all these years, I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And I've drawn your attention to a few phrases all these years, never once, single thing. This was about him. But he goes on and says, and in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. So here's a communication tip. This is just a bit of a bonus for all of you aspiring communication legends. Husbands and wives, remember this. Unless you're speaking of God, it's a good idea to never say never and to always avoid always. That's just a good practice because never is almost never right and always is almost always wrong. So my suggestion is just take those words, unless you're talking, just take those words out of your vocabulary. Those kinds of absolutes can get you in all kinds of trouble because if you're in a heated argument with your spouse and you say, well, you never... first thing they're going to come back with. Well, yeah, I do. You never say you love me. I said it on our wedding day. If it changes, I'll let you know. You know, they're going to bring up the one time that that doesn't apply. So just throw those out of your vocabulary. The older son painted his life with his father as cruel and joyless. Look at all of this that I've had to do. Uh, I've never once, and I've been, and you've never, and I've just because he resented the mercy and the grace that was being shown to his younger brother. You did all of this for young son. You never did anything like this for me. And probably wasn't true. But it did serve Jesus' story. The older son's basic complaint was this. You're not being fair. How many times have you ever said or heard that come out of your kids' mouths, or maybe your grandkids, you're not being fair. That's one of our favorite phrases, our favorite expressions. You're not being fair. Yet when this, this son of yours, look at the way that he, he frames the relationship, the family, this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes. You celebrate by killing the fattened calf. This son of yours, you're not being fair to me because of this son of yours. 
got me to thinking about the way I often behave and the way that I often feel, sometimes jealous, sometimes bitter, sometimes angry with my Heavenly Father, if I'm being real. And what I need to remember is something fundamental. You don't even have to be a believer. You don't have to even believe that the Bible is true to understand and admit this. But I want you to think about it with me for just a second. If there is a God, I believe there is, but I can't tell you what to believe. That choice is up to you. If there is a God, then he must be good. He has to be good. If he isn't good, then how do you account for all the goodness in the world? Yes, the world is broken. Yes, the world is full of people who do unspeakable acts of evil, but that's not all there is. And if there was no God, if we were left to our own devices, that would be all there is. I think all you got to do is look around and see the goodness in the world, the acts of kindness that people exhibit for one another, and to me that's proof. Love is proof that there is a God. He must be good. And if God is good, then he must be fair. He has to be fair. If he wasn't fair, he couldn't be good. Instead of showing anger, this loving father, the loving father in the story that Jesus cho uh, spoke of, he chose to affirm his son's identity. Look at this real fast. His father said to him, look, dear son. He called him dear son. Not, oh yeah, this son of yours? Okay, son of your mother. Who are you taking after right now? Not me. You're, you're all her, buddy. No. He said, dear son of mine. Dear son, he chose to affirm his identity, to applaud his son's faithfulness. Remember the son said, I've struggled for you. I've served you faithfully all these years. And his father said, yeah, you have. Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me. You're absolutely right about that. You have always stayed by me. Not only did he affirm his identity and applaud his faithfulness, but he also acknowledged his son's inheritance. Remember, maybe he was scared that, that he was going to have to divide his inheritance again between himself and his brother. The father said, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. I'm not going to divide it. I'm not going to split it. It's all yours. We had to celebrate going on, his dad said, this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost but now he is found. We had to celebrate because your brother was dead and has come back to life. So let's go back to this concept of new math. When the father said, dear son, when he affirmed his son's identity, he was in essence saying, life, your brother's life is worth more than what he's called. My life before God, as far as God's concerned, it's worth more than what I'm called. I have a name, you have a name. I have a heritage, you have a heritage. I have a family, you have a family. But your worth before God doesn't depend on any of that. It's worth more than what you're called. He said, you've always stayed by me because life, we have to celebrate because your younger brother's life is worth more than what he's done and so is yours. Your life is worth more than what you've done. You may have made some mistakes. Who hasn't made mistakes? You may have done some things that you're ashamed of, that you're not proud of. Who hasn't done that? There's nobody perfect. Well, there was one. And he died. 
for you and me. Your life is worth more than what you've done. And he said, everything I have is yours. It's worth more than what you've got. Some of us spend an awful lot of time trying to accumulate wealth, but that's not what life is about. Life is more than what you've got. See, my, the problem is that, honestly, my love often equals these things. My love, because my love is not like my father's love, my heavenly father's love. I want it to be. I strive for it to be. I really hope that someday it will be. I'm getting there. I'm moving in that direction, but it's not there yet. My love often equals what you're called. You have a title, a position. You know, it's easier to respect you. My love often equals what you've done. You've done something significant with your life. And it's easier. It's easier to love you or think highly of you. My love often equals what you've got. It's easier. It's just easier to love somebody. But God's love is always greater. And yeah, I'm purposefully using that word that I said is almost always wrong. Because I'm talking about God. God's love is always greater. God's love is always greater than what I'm called. Doesn't matter. Your name? Doesn't matter. Your family? Doesn't matter as far as God's concerned. Your heritage? Your DNA? Your 23andMe? Doesn't matter as far as God's concerned. As far as God's concerned, He loves you because that's who He is. God's love is always greater than what you've done. We've all made mistakes. God knows that. He made us. He didn't make us make the mistakes. We did that. We made our choices. God made us. We made our choices. So God sent his son. And God's love is always greater than what I've got. Always greater than what I've got. And I'm thankful for that because I'm in the ministry. All right. That's not a complaint. I love what I do. Uh, the older brother who represented the Pharisees and religious teachers never responded to his father. You know, Jesus didn't give us an epilogue to the story. He, this is one of the things that's kind of always bugged me about this story when I read it in the Bible. It, Jesus did not tell us what the older brother did in response to what his dad said. Jesus doesn't say the older brother came in the house. Jesus doesn't say the older brother apologized to his younger brother for the way that he felt about him. Jesus didn't say any of that. He didn't give us any kind of clue into how the older brother responded. But the crowd that was there that day, those real people, because Jesus was making up this story, but the crowd that was there that day, oh, they most definitely responded. Some of them ignored him. Ah, oh, that crazy teacher, what does he know? Some of them acknowledged him. Ah, something to think about, I suppose. And then some of them embraced him and the point that he was trying to make. Some of them embraced him and the point he was trying to make. And here's my point this morning. It wasn't written just to chart the facts of Jesus' life. I mean, that's part of the reason that it was written, but that's not the only reason that it was written to tell us about the Son of God. Of course, I'm grateful that the Bible has the record of the life of the Son of God, but the Bible was written to change our lives. That's really why the record is there. It was written to change the lives of Jesus' followers. And if we read it and even know what it says but don't apply it to our lives, this is just an academic exercise in futility. The people who were there that day who heard Jesus tell the story, think about who was there. There was the Pharisees and the religious people. 
There was Jesus. There was the people that the Pharisees and the religious people weren't so fond of, the unsavory characters, the tax collectors, and the notorious sinners. But there was another group of people there that day too. The people who followed Jesus everywhere. There was the disciples. And I'm inclined to think that they all had very different responses. Which of those groups would you consider yourself this morning? Are you a Pharisee? Probably not. Nobody would like to think of themselves that way. A notorious sinner? Maybe. If so, I'm really glad you're here today. I am. Or would you consider yourself a follower, a disciple? Well, the disciples were there and they heard the story and they were called to make a decision as well. So what decision will you make this morning? What end will you write to this story? I want to leave you with a few verses from the book of 2 Corinthians, written by another follower of Jesus, the Apostle Paul. He wrote this, Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. We're not supposed to live that way anymore because of what Jesus did for us. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. And someone who receives that new life, we say that person's a believer. We call that person saved. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So, we who have believed, who have been saved, we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. All of those formulas that I drew for you this morning, life is more than, I think life is equal to, we've stopped doing that. We have to stop doing that, and we have to see people as God sees them. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, but how differently we know Him now when we know Him as Savior, when we know Him as Lord. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. They start a brand new life. Even if you're already a believer, it could be the morning when you start looking at people, human beings that God created through a brand new lens because no one is worthless and no one is worth less. Have you been redeemed you know, that's kind of a word that we don't throw around much in our culture. But it, among churches, when, I, when we say redeemed, what we mean is bought back. That's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He bought back our lives. He bought us back from the place where we were headed, to hell, to an eternal separation from God. But there's another quality of being redeemed that applies even to us who are believers redeeming our lives from a pointless direction, redeeming our perspective from something that is ungodly. Have you been redeemed?